0: In the early 90s, there was a popular TV show on called The Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Now, I don't think I have to ask if some of you know about the show. How many of you? Just a show of hands. All right, wow. Majority of people in here. That's great. All right. Well, for those of you all who remember the show, you remember it's a comedy about a street smart kid from the slums of West Philadelphia who is sent to move in with his aunt and uncle in their wealthy Bel Air mansion. And the whole show is about this kid, played by Will Smith, learning how to live in this new wealthy environment after having grown up in poverty. And a lot of the comedy in the show comes when Will brings his old ways into his new environment. Check out this clip. From fresh Prince How do you do our huh? Mr. Banks? You got that <laughs> right. Man, you loaded. Hey, Yo, what's up, Jay? <laughs> Come on, Philip, let's just leave him alone. I asked her to take him take her to her lesson I guy. know, baby. Hey, shop up. let jazz get busy one time. Yeah, so this this show is on for a while. One of of the main points of this this show is about how difficult it is for individuals to rid themselves of their old patterns once they've been established. And you'll find as you watch a little bit of the show that this happens to Will a lot. The, The old patterns from the old neighborhood come in to play in his new environment and causes some problems for him and believers. The same is true for us. When God found you and me, we were in spiritual poverty. And though now we have all we need, though now we are rich because God has saved us and is transforming us into the image of His Son, many of us are still learning how to live this way, the way we should, in this new situation. And oftentimes... Some of the old patterns from the old neighborhood resurface, don't they? They need to be dealt with. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We are continuing our sermon series through 1 Corinthians entitled Paul's message to a messy church and this morning we are going to look specifically at verses 6 through 13 but but before we do let me give you a little review Uh, of the uh, first part of this chapter, the passage we talked about last week because it comes into play again this week. Remember last week, I reminded you, like I told you in the introduction, that the city of Corinth was extremely immoral. Not only was it a city filled with materialistic and and power-hungry types of people, but it was also filled with perverse and sexually immoral types of people as well. And over time, The church that Paul planted in this city, instead of being the influencer, begins to be influenced by this worldly city. And over time, they begin to give in to these things, and they begin to carry these old patterns from their old life into their new environment. Well, in chapter 5, Paul is writing to address a specific issue that has cropped up and that is endangering the health of the entire church. There's a young man who is a part of the church who is having an affair with his stepmother. But remember, the big issue for Paul was not just the fact that that this had occurred, even though he admits it's awful. But it's the fact that the Corinthians, it had taken place right in front of them and they were doing nothing about it. So Paul writes this chapter here and and calls for them to deal with this issue. He calls for the Corinthians to take sin seriously and deal with it appropriately and biblically by removing this man from fellowship for his own sake and for the sake of the church. Well, in verses 6-13, through 13, Paul continues to address this issue by warning those in the church of the dangers of not dealing with sin. In our passage for this morning, this is Paul's message to this messy church. Be an unleavened church. Be an unleavened church. Now, if some of you in here are scratching your heads, not knowing what that title is all about, just hang tight, okay? Because if it's not clear yet, it will become clear in today's message because in the following verses, Paul is going to explain what it means and what it looks like for a church to be an unleavened church. First, Paul says this, number one. Do not let old influences ruin your new life in Christ. He says, to be an unleavened church, you cannot allow old influences from your ungodly past ruin your new life in Christ. Look at verse 6. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Once again, Paul begins here with criticism of the Corinthians because they were arrogant and they were boastful. Like we said last week, though they should have been messed up over this sin, they should have been grieving over this terrible thing that had taken place in their midst. Instead, you know what they were doing? They were strutting around like nothing had happened. They were acting as if they had it all together spiritually. One of my favorite stories growing up was the story of the tortoise and the hare. You remember that one? Remember the hare was so prideful and arrogant and full of himself, so much so that he failed to even look for the approaching tortoise. And this oversight led to his defeat. Paul is saying something similar here to the Corinthians. He says at the beginning of verse 6, your boasting is not good. And the reason why is because this puffed up attitude that they had was blinding them from the fact that the church was in turmoil. And it was preventing them from seeing and dealing with the problems that were threatening the health of the church. Paul goes on to say, do you not know that a... That a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, what in the world is Paul talking about here? I mean, in this chapter, Paul has been talking about, he's been talking to the Corinthians about taking sin seriously and dealing with sin appropriately and biblically. And then all of a sudden, he begins to talk about the process of baking bread. First, that seems sort of out of place and random, doesn't it? but not when you understand it in its context. You see, Paul is using an idiom here. He's using figurative language. If we were to use one of our idioms from today to explain what Paul is saying here, we might tell the Corinthians, do you not know that one bad apple ruins the barrel? That's what Paul is saying here, but to get an even better understanding of this verse, we need to understand the process of baking bread in the first century. I bet you weren't, weren't even expecting to hear that this morning, right? But bear with me, okay, because it has to do with what Paul is saying here. In Paul's day, when a lady would, would bake bread, she would get all the dough ready, And then she would put it into whatever receptacle it was to be baked in. And then she would take a piece of dough out. And she would roll it in a ball and she would place it into water. And after a period of time, that piece of dough would sour. And then she would take that piece of dough out and set it aside for when it was time to make bread again. And then when it was time, she would put that old piece of dough into the new dough as a starter. And this soured piece of dough would greatly influence the entire loaf of bread. It would affect both the taste and the look of the entire loaf. See what Paul's saying here? You see, leaven carries with it the idea of something from the past influencing something in the present. Because again, with, with, with the leaven, the leavened bread, one was to take one little piece from the old and place it in the new. And it would greatly influence it and affect the look and taste. See where Paul's going here with this illustration? He wants the, the Corinthians to understand in the same way a little piece of sourdough from the old influences the entire loaf. So a little sin from the old life influences and corrupts one's new life in Christ. Remember, God had called the Christians at Corinth out of this godless city and he had set them apart for his purposes. But unfortunately, some of the old influences from their former life and from this godless city were now being carried over by the Corinthians into their new life in Christ and into this new community the church so paul is using this illustration here to show them of the dangers of the the leftovers from their former life influencing their new life in christ and he does this by showing how the how the old corrupts the new believers sin from our former life is like gangrene you know what gangrene is It's a disease that most commonly starts in the toes or in in the fingers. And and if it's allowed to remain, if it goes untreated, it can spread throughout the body. And if untreated long enough, it can kill the healthiest of people. The same is true of sin. The same is true of sin. If it goes untreated, it can spread and destroy the healthiest of churches. I heard a pastor once say, sin never sits still. It's a good description, isn't it? What he means is it's, it's infectious and it's, it's contagious. And if it's not dealt with, it will have a harmful effect on all those around it. Well, after warning the Corinthians here, about the devastating effects of sin in the church, Paul goes on from there to give them advice on how to deal with these old patterns in their new life. In verse 7, look at what Paul says. He says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be made a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul says... Cleanse out, purge out, remove the leaven. Paul is telling them that that they are to remove the infected area. At times, to stop a disease from spreading, an amputation is required. And that's what Paul is calling for here. He says, for you to be a new lump, for you to be an unleavened church, you have to make the conscious effort to remove the old ways from your new life. You have to be willing to remove any and every worldly influence from your new life. Paul says, get rid of it. Do away with it. Nothing from your old life, none of the old habits and hang-ups from your former life should be welcome into your new life because it does nothing but hurt you individually and the church corporately. Times in college football when there are coaching changes especially when the team is in pretty bad shape the new head coach will will come in and he will completely replace the old coaching staff with a new coaching staff. He might even bring in new kinds of recruits, change the look of the offense, and he might even change, change the team's uniforms even a little bit, the look of that. And, and one of the reasons why they do this is because they want to do away with any look of the old, and they want to do away with any of the problems from the past, and sometimes they think the best way to do it is to start from scratch. That's what God did when he saved us. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When you were saved, you became a new creation. The Bible calls it being born again. It's not something added to your old life. It's a new life altogether. God removes the old and starts from scratch on us to make us and create us into who He has called us to be. And when we hang on to the the old patterns, when we bring things from our former life into our new life, it always makes a mess of things. God has given us a new life. He doesn't want remnants from the old in with the new. The end of verse 7 Paul says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Now, how does that fit in here? What's Paul's point here? Why does he throw this in about our Passover lamb being sacrificed for us? Here's why. Remember in Exodus when the Israelites were in Egypt and they were slaves and being oppressed. God came in and and said through Moses, let my people go. But Pharaoh refused. So God started sending plagues and the first nine plagues didn't quite wake Pharaoh up. He, he remained hard in his heart and he refused to let God's people go. So God decides to send the plague of all plagues. He sent an angel of death who came and took the life of every firstborn child. But you remember the Israelites had an opportunity to be spared from this plague but they had to. what they had to do is they had to go out and get a lamb, and they had to sacrifice that lamb. And they had to take the blood of the lamb and spread it over the doorpost. And they were told if they did that, their house would be passed over. And they did that, and you know the story. Many of their children were spared. But another thing that this event did was it, it moved Pharaoh to let God's people go. And it allowed for God's people to be delivered from Egyptian bondage. This this act, it it, it signifies a separation of Israel from Egypt. This sacrifice enabled Israel to leave their old life in Egypt behind. So when Paul refers to Christ as our Passover lamb, he's making the point here that Christ was sacrificed on our behalf to, to sever our connection with the world so that we can live a new life in Him. He's telling the Christians at Corinth here, in the same way, the Israelites were separated from Egypt because of the sacrifice of their Passover lamb. So you have been separated from the unbelieving world because of the sacrifice that's been provided for you by your Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus. Does that make sense? Paul says all that here about the unleavened bread and about Christ, the Passover lamb, to remind the believers here of what new life, what the new life in Christ is to look like. There is to be a a separation from the unbelieving world. And there are to be no ungodly influences from our old life carried over to influence the new. Look at verse 8. Paul says, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is simply saying here that because of what Christ, your Passover lamb, has done for you, by separating you from your old life and from the unbelieving world and by making you a new creature. He says, in response, you are to continue to observe what He has done for you. Continue to live out the unleavened life individually and collectively. Be an unleavened church. Not a combination of the old and new. Not a mixture of worldly, godly. Just godly, just new. Believers, the reason we are not to overlook the sin in our lives and in the church is for this reason. We are to be set apart. There are a lot of churches today who are trying to look more and more like the world to appeal to the world. And though Paul did say that he becomes all things to all men without moral compromise to win some, There's a lot of moral compromise going on in the church, isn't there? To look more like the world. And if Paul were to see this, he would take issue with it. Listen, this is key. I want you to get this. I truly believe that what makes the church appealing is when it's set apart. When it's filled with Christ followers who want nothing more than to look more like Christ and less like the world is that your desire today should be like I said last week what I want more than anything when uh, people talk about our church what I want our reputation to be is is along these lines here I don't want to ultimately be known as the church where you can come and dress casually though we can right That's fine. I want to ultimately be known as a church where, you know, we have guitar and drums, though we have them and I love them. But what I want to be known for is a church that is serious about living the new life. I want to be known as a church where people are serious about being like Christ, being conformed to the image of God's Son. Don't you want that kind of reputation here at this church? I pray that you do. Number two, do not let unrepentant sinners infect Christ's church. To be an unleavened church, we cannot be okay with wayward, unrepentant sinners infecting Christ's church. Look at verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, Here, Paul, when he says, I wrote to you, he's referring to a a letter he wrote before this one. Remember in the intro I shared with you that Paul makes mention of two other letters he wrote other than 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Now, the ones we have are the ones we need, right? But he does make mention of the others here. And he says here, in a previous letter, I told you not to associate with sexually immoral people. So we can better understand Paul's frustration here, can't we? Because he's already talked to them about this. And now he hears about this heinous and perverse sin that is being swept under the rug by the Corinthians, and he's frustrated about it. Because he's already spoke to them about taking sin seriously. And though you can't see it in the the English, Paul in the Greek is using very strong language here when he reminds them not to associate with sexually immoral people. If we were to translate what Paul literally meant when he said this here, a better translation would be like this. Under no circumstances, at no time, at any time whatsoever... Are you to have anything to do with sexually immoral people? Do not get mixed up with them. Instead, separate from them. That's literally what Paul is saying here. He's saying, and he's talking about believers specifically, he's saying, you are to refuse fellowship with unrepentant, immoral members of the church. Now remember, we said last week that you were to go to them and give them two choices. Repentance or discipline. And if they repent, and turn, you are to receive and restore them in love. But if they refuse, you are to discipline them in love. And some of you are in here saying, discipline and love, that just sounds harsh. You may cringe at the very uh, phrase, church discipline. But remember, we talked about last week that this act, if done right, is the most loving act that you can do for an unrepentant sinner. And not disciplining them is one of the most hateful acts you can do for them. God tells us that in Scripture. So discipline done right is is beneficial because it actually leads people back to a right relationship with God. God. It's how God has set it up to bring unrepentant sinners back into a right relationship with Him is through church discipline. And if you missed last week, You really should hear these two sermons together. They're more like a two-part series because last week we talked about the fact that we we talked about how church discipline benefits the individual, and this week, of course, we're talking about how church discipline benefits the church. So you really need to hear both sides. And I encourage you, if you were gone last week, to get online, fellowshipjacksonville.com, Click on the sermons and, and listen to Don't Make Mole Hills Out of Mountains, and you'll have both sides of this, uh, of this talk on church discipline. And I encourage you to do that, okay? Also, we have a handout when you leave today written by Wayne Grudem about church discipline. Some of you grabbed some last week. If you didn't get one last week, they'll be out on the table where you get your bulletins. And uh, I encourage you to grab one because he's going to talk all about church discipline and how it benefits the unrepentant and how it benefits the church. Okay. All right. But here, Paul in this passage is, is he's giving a, a strong warning here. All right. To not tolerate this kind of behavior in the church and we discussed last week the reasons why and we discussed it some this morning already like we said already sin does not sit still does it it is infectious and if left alone it can destroy the church that's why it's to be dealt with swiftly and appropriately and biblically i heard a story recently about a man who was extremely ill and he was told by many that he, that he might have cancer, but the man refused to go to the doctor because he didn't want to hear if he did have cancer. He didn't want to hear the truth. So he went on to live his life in pain, and he eventually died from a sickness that could have been treated. You say, that's ridiculous. You're right, it is. But you know what else is ridiculous? God's people refusing to deal with the sin in their church because it too can spread and it too can destroy. Paul says here, deal with it. Call for these individuals to repent and if they do not, remove them for the sake of the church. Look at verses 10 and 11. Paul says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. There was a televangelist in the 1970s by the name of O.L. Jaggers. Some of you probably remember him. Uh, At one time, he had a whole bunch of uh, property for sale out in the desert. He was actually selling plots of land to people to build this big city, and he was going to build a great big wall around the city so that they could keep the sin out. Basically barricade themselves from the surrounding world. Well, it made him rich and eventually landed him in jail. So you see, he couldn't avoid sin no matter how hard he tried because he was there, right? This is not to be our mentality, all right? When Paul says that we are to not to have anything to do with the sexually immoral, he's not talking about the world. He's not talking about us completely barricading ourselves off, building a city with a big wall around it out in the desert to keep the sinful world out. Scripture is clear that we are to be in the world, not of the world, but in the world, right? Right? Now, how does this look? What does this look like? Well, I think John MacArthur said it best when he said this. It's not no contact. It's no conformity. It's pretty good, isn't it? Contact, not conformity. Think about this. Was this not the ministry of the Lord Jesus? He was without sin, right? But he spent a lot of time with drunkards and prostitutes and tax collectors. He went after them and he ministered to them. He bypassed the self-righteous, and he went to the down and out, the social outcast. Why? The answer is simple, because they needed him. He summed up his ministry like this. Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. And this is to be our approach as well as, as Christians and as a church. Believers, we're not to avoid the world. We're to be in the middle of the world. We're to love the world. We're to, we're, to, we're to go to those people who are sexually immoral and greedy and idolatrous. Those who have sinned against their own body, sinned against one another, and sinned against God Himself. And we're to love them and serve them and minister to them so that we can win them for Christ. We're not to do what they do. But we are to do what others don't do in that we're to go to them and reach out to them and love them and serve them and minister to them. Jesus said in Matthew 5:14 through 16, "To believers, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others." so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are to be this way. This is to be true of us. We are called by the Lord to to go out into the world and to represent Christ by letting our light shine. We are not to be cut off from the world, but we are to be in the middle of the world, taking this message of hope to the hopeless. Verse 11, Paul explains who he is talking about here when he talks about do not be associated with the sexually immoral. Look at what he says here. He says, do not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Now, let me tell you something. This must have gone off like a bomb when it was read before the Corinthian assembly. Because every one of these sins that are mentioned here by Paul, we are told, are characteristic of the Corinthians. They were immoral, as it says right here in chapter 5. They were idolaters, chapter 10. They were drunkards, chapter 11. So what Paul is doing here is he's calling for a church-wide repentance in the church at Corinth. He's saying to the church here, those who are sexually immoral are to repent or be put out. Those who are worshiping other gods are to repent or be put out. Those who are drunkards are to repent or be put out. And you say, that's radical. But listen, that's biblical. It is. Believers, let's be honest. Let's just call a spade a spade here. This is hard, isn't it? This is a difficult thing to do, but it's essential for unrepentant believers to be made right with God again. And it's essential for us, for the health of our church. And it's biblical. And it's not that we don't love those who are involved in these acts. We are to do this because we love them and because we want to see them restored and because we love the church and want to see the church thrive. Paul ends this chapter in verses 12 and 13 by saying this, For what have I to do with judging others Is it not those inside the church who we are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. When I was young and I got in trouble for doing something I wasn't supposed to, at times I would throw this out at my parents. Well, so-and-so's parents let him do it. And how would my parents respond? Y'all know how, right? Y'all have said it before. We're not so-and-so's parents. We're not responsible for what goes on at so-and-so's house. We're responsible for you. And Paul is saying something similar here to the church. He is saying, don't worry so much about the goings-on in the world. Let God judge and deal with those people. He said, you worry about the goings-on in the church. Take care of the people who are in-house, believers within your church. He says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Now let me ask you this, with all this talk about Paul putting people out if they don't repent and about doing away with everything from your old life and not allowing it to influence the new, is Paul saying the church has to be perfect? Is that what he's saying? You have to be perfect. No. Though we have many in our world today looking for the perfect church, you're not going to find it. My advice is if you ever do, let's not go there. Because then it wouldn't be perfect anymore because we'd be there, right? Yeah. So Paul is not calling for the church to be perfect. But he is calling for them to desire perfection. Now that's different. He's calling for them to pursue godliness. And to long for the day when the power and presence of sin is removed from God's people. That's what he's calling for. Paul knows For them to get to where they need to get spiritually at times, it involves cutting one loose who doesn't desire those things. Like we said earlier, cancer must be cut out. Leaven must be left out so the church can be healthy and thrive. I want to end this morning by sharing with you why being an unleavened church is difficult. The problem is real simple, isn't it? Old habits die hard. And the reason why old habits die hard is because we are fallen. We are sinners. Remember earlier in the, sh- in, in the, uh, in the sermon I shared with you about the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and about how difficult it was for his character to do away with his old ways from his old neighborhood. The same is true for us. And the reason why is because Scripture is clear, we were conceived in sin. And from the moment we left the womb, we've been struggling with it, haven't we? Though many of us have been saved and have had the penalty of sin removed from our lives, the power and the presence of sin are still very much a reality in our lives and in our world today. And if these things are not dealt with, if we don't repent of these things, if we don't Continually give these things over to God if we fail to address the sins in our own life it can destroy our lives our testimony and the church it's imperative that we don't overlook the sin in our lives and in this church but that we take it seriously not saying we won't mess up we will, right? but we need to hate it when we do and when we do fall we need to get back up We need to dust ourselves off and get back in the race and and run for God and pursue godliness and desire to be made like Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling, but it's because you have yet to be reborn. You have yet to start a new life with Christ. Listen, that can change this morning. That can all change for you this morning if you would turn from your sins and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you're in this boat today, I pray today be the day that you stop following your own desires and that you start following the Lord. That today be the day you stop living for this life and this life only and you begin to see that the only life worth living is the unleavened life, the new life in Christ. Would you pray with me?